can open up your Bibles or your Bible apps or just simply Google Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, we're reading in the Gospel of Matthew, and Gospel means good news. Uh, when I turn on my phone every morning, there's never any good news. When I turn on my television, there never seems to be any good news. But when I open up Matthew, there is good news. Good news or Gospel uh, is simply what we call the life and death resurrection and ascension of jesus his coming is good for our world we have four accounts from his disciples or students of jesus who wrote an explanation of why he was good news for all people and matthew the book of matthew that we're in was written by matthew he's a jew who worked for the roman empire as a tax collector he was shunned by his own people as a traitor but in jesus he saw the long-awaited king who would restore god's role and reign on earth now we're right in the middle right at the end of the introduction but kind of in the middle of the sermon on the mount the densest collection of jesus's teachings in the bible it's here that jesus outlines what it looks like to live and love like he does what it looks like to live an ordinary day with him as king and we're picking up in matthew chapter 5 verse 17 this is what it says do not think that i have come to abolish the law or the prophets i've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them for truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, in the first century, rabbis traveled around from village to village, teaching a way of life based on the Old Testament. And Jesus is not doing anything unusual here. He's doing the exact same thing. The only thing unusual about what he's doing is, instead of going to a synagogue and saying, show me your best student, He's going to everyday, ordinary people and saying, you can be my disciple. As Jesus grows more controversial, though, as he rejects the power and the influence of the religious elites, he will be accused of being a religious radical. And some of the religious leaders will, be, uh, will say later on, you're trying to throw out all our traditions, you're trying to reject the Old Testament, you're just saying that none of that is worth anything, you're just tossing everything in the trash. And notice what he says here, he says, I'm not here to destroy the law and the prophets. I'm here to fulfill them. The law and the prophets are shorthand for the Tanakh. That's the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew scriptures. That's the same books as we have in our Old Testament. They have in their Tanakh. Um, they're arranged a little bit differently, but the exact same words, exact same books. Now, Jesus is saying here that he sees himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. You guys know I love Star Wars, right? Episode 9 uh, was supposed to be the fulfillment of the entire Star Wars saga. Rise of Skywalker was supposed to be this culmination of all the eight episodes that had come before it. But Rise of Skywalker left fans disenfranchised, right? We watched this and we were like, what in the world? Like, that wasn't the fulfillment of eight episodes of Star Wars. Uh, it left us disappointed because it didn't satisfy us. It wasn't a satisfying ending or conclusion. We wanted it to be all summed up. And instead, we got three movies about Rey trying to figure out who she was. And Kylo Ren keep trying to kiss her for some reason. And um, it was just not a satisfying conclusion to the Star Wars saga. 
But Jesus claims here that he is the satisfying conclusion to the Old Testament story. He's like, you've read the whole Tanakh? Guess what? That longing, that deep desire, that uh, longing for resolution that the Old Testament leaves you with, I'm the fulfillment of that. In John's account of Jesus' life, he records Jesus saying this in John 5, 29. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Jesus is like, if you read the Old Testament, those were the only scriptures around at the time. He says, they point to me. I'm the fulfillment of the story. Jesus saw the story from Genesis to Malachi as a storyline that tells a unified story that led to him. He, his life, his teachings, his death, his burial, his ascension, his resurrection was the culmination of the Old Testament storyline. So what is the storyline of the Old Testament? Well, just quickly, God creates the universe, appoints humans to rule and reign as his representatives on earth. Their job is to multiply the beauty, abundance, and flourishing that God built into creation. But instead, they choose to hand the world over to dark spiritual forces. They don't want to work as representatives for God. They want to work for themselves. But in doing so, they end up enslaved to darkness. They forfeit reigning and ruling as God's representatives and instead become slaves to dark powers. But God promises that a new king would come to squelch the darkness and restore the co-rulership of heaven and earth. So, starts out, all of humanity are going to be representatives of God. We are going to rule and reign on this earth as representatives as God, and as humans, we fail. So God chooses one nation to represent him, Israel, and he says, you're going to be a nation of priests. You're going to represent me to the world, and Israel fails. So after that, he chooses one tribe from the nation of Israel, the house of Judah. And guess what Judah does? They fail. And then he chooses one family from the house of Judah, the line of David. And what does the line of David do? They fail. This isn't a trick question. It's always going to be they fail. Right? And then he chooses one man from the house of David, the Messiah. And he says, where everyone else has failed, the Messiah will succeed. And so people reading the Old Testament, they were excited. They were like eagerly anticipating when the Messiah would show up. Rabbis would travel around predicting about when the Messiah would come. Just like we have televangelists now like predicting like the world's going to end tomorrow. You know, people were predicting like the Messiah is going to come tomorrow. He's going to come next year. The Messiah would be the once and future king, the promised one to restore the relationship between heaven and earth, between humanity and God, because he would be both human and divine. The Old Testament is designed to leave us constantly disappointed by its heroes. Anywhere you read in the Old Testament, you're like, Abraham, such a good guy. And then you're like, you did what to your wife? And then it's like, David, such a good guy. You did what to that guy and his wife? Like, it's like all the heroes keep failing it leaves us keep it leaves us with this desire that we keep hoping we want a hero to show up and do what needs to be done to restore the relationship between god and man we keep hoping for the messiah and jesus says hey the culmination of that whole story everything you've been waiting for it's me i am the satisfying conclusion to the story you've been waiting for Jesus invites everyone and anyone to come and experience a new way of being human and to look forward to a future where he rules and reigns as king. And Jesus sees the Old Testament scriptures not just as historic pieces of literature, 
but as divine scripture. We see here in verse 18, he says, Truly until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the smallest stroke of the pen will disappear. These things will be accomplished. He sees God as divinely protecting the scriptures of the Old Testament and preserving them, preserving them so that they are fulfilled. And he uses an odd expression here. If you have a translation like I do, they've updated it to smallest letter or stroke of the pen. But if you have an older translation, it'll say this. Not a jot or a tittle will be lost from the scriptures. That's a very strange expression, right? That's not something you go around saying. No, jot was the Aramaic way of saying the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which is kaf. See it over here? That's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. He says not a single small letter will be lost. And then a tittle is actually, do you see over here in the Hebrew letter bet? Do you see that little jut out there on the end? Oh, sorry, I reversed these. Yod is the smallest letter. And then calf and bet actually look exactly the same except for that little jut out on the end there. That's a tittle. Like, you know how an O and a Q are the same letter except for that little line? That's a tittle. That little small difference. That's what Jesus is referencing here. He's like, the smallest little thing will not be lost. Sometimes it feels like God's got his eye on the big picture, but the small things in our lives get lost. You ever feel like that? He's not missing the little things. Even if it's a tiny little line that changes one letter to another. In verse 19, Jesus begins to shift gears. He's outlined for us, or he's about to outline for us, what it looks like um, to live his way of life. And he believes that the Old Testament is divinely inspired, and this way of life is based on that, and this is what life in his kingdom, what life with him as a king will look like. And so he makes a bold statement. He says, do you want to be great in my kingdom? This is how you do it. Like, and I immediately want to listen up. You know, can you imagine yourself sitting there? He's teaching on a mountain. There's thousands of people around, hundreds of people around. And uh, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to be king. I'm going to implement this kingdom. I'm the culmination of the Old Testament story. Do you want to be great in my kingdom? I'd be like, yes. Like, what do I have to do? Notice what he says here in this verse. You want to be great in Jesus' kingdom? Practice what Jesus teaches. Teachings based on the Old Testament. And teach other people to practice it too. The lowest in the kingdom of Jesus are those who don't practice what he teaches, or those who teach others not to do what he teaches, or those who teach what he taught but don't practice it themselves. That's especially uh, important to me as someone who stands up and teaches each week. It's easy for me to teach what Jesus taught and not practice it. And Jesus says, that's a quick way to be the lowest person in my kingdom. And this all comes from um, verse 18 and verse 19, where he says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in my kingdom. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you might not think of yourself as a teacher. You're like, I've never stood up and taught anybody the Bible. Uh, but our deeds teach others around us all the time. Um, my nephew's here. And one thing I've noticed about uh, people younger than me, like when I hang out with like Clayton or my nephew, if I do something, they're like, oh, that's okay to do. Now I'm gonna do that too. 
And sometimes I do things just to be silly or be dumb, and Darby will be like, are you showing off just because my nephew's here? And I'm like, yeah, a little bit. But then what I find out is my nephew ends up doing the same thing, you know? And so all the time we are influencing people around us. We have way more influence than we think, way more influence than we notice. And I will not be surprised if in the next life we do not find that we had influence that, far, that reached far beyond our wildest, wildest imaginations. But what I'm telling you is you're teaching people all the time by the way you behave and what you say. You're either teaching people to follow the example of Jesus or you're teaching people not to follow his example. In other words, as John records Jesus saying in John 14, 15, here's what Jesus said. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, do what I said. If you say you love me, you'll obey what I asked of you. Love isn't something you say, it's something you show. It's easy to sit in a room on a Sunday and say, I love Jesus, he's so great. It's really hard to come into work on a Monday and love my difficult co-worker, but that's how love is lived out. Love is lived out during the week in our workplaces and in our homes and on our streets and in our grocery stores. We love Jesus when we live and live like he did and love others like he did. We love Jesus when we teach others to live and love like he does too. So then Jesus says something unexpected in verse 20, which he will do over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus loved to say unexpected things and ask interesting questions. In verse 20, though, look what, what he says. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, and the teachers of the, of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the religious teachers of the law. Now this would be surprising because the Pharisees were considered the most righteous people in the community, and they let everybody know it. You know, they, Jesus is going to go on later in his teachings to say when they pray, they make sure there's a big group of people around, and then they pray really loud so everybody knows. You know, when they give, they're like, oh, I'm starting to give. Is anybody watching? Okay, wait, here comes the crowd. Give more, you know, like they just love the show. The teachers of the law would be like our pastors or our preachers, the people standing up and saying, this is what the Old Testament says. And so the, to the crowd listening to this, they would have been like, I've got to be better than them. That's not going to happen. Like they put me to shame all the time. The Pharisees were so careful to follow the 613 commands in the Torah, the first five books of the Tanakh, that they added thousands of oral tradition commands as fence posts so they wouldn't even get close to breaking one of the 613 commands. For instance, God said, keep the Sabbath day. He said, take a day each week and rest from work and celebrate what God does when we wait on him. The Pharisees, though, they took it even farther, and they said, well, if you shouldn't work then you should certainly not pluck wheat. And if you shouldn't pluck wheat, then you certainly, certainly should not pluck a gray hair on the Sabbath. And so they said, if you pull out a gray hair on the Sabbath, that's the same as plucking wheat, which is a sin. And so that's the kind of crazy length that they went to. Um, the Pharisees also would tithe everything. God said you should give a first tenth of everything you earn to the temple as a recognition that everything you have is a gift from God. That's where we get the word tithe from. It means tenth. A tenth of your first fruits set aside for God as an acknowledgement that everything we have is a divine gift and that we're grateful. The Pharisees, though, would tithe a tenth of everything they touched. 
So you'd be at a meal, and they'd be like, hey, pass me, pass me the ranch dressing. And uh, they'd go, okay, I'm going to put some on my salad. Okay, that was about a cup, so let me take a tenth of that and set that aside. I'm going to take that to the temple later and tithe that. They're like, hand me some of those seasonings. They would actually tithe their seasonings. Anything they use, they would take a tenth of. They're like, we just want to make sure we're giving God a tenth of everything. You give him a tenth of your money? Well, that's fine. I give him a tenth of everything. The Pharisees. What? I mean, they were probably a delight at parties. Am I right? Um, so when people heard this, they had to be upset. Can you imagine sitting out there and Jesus is like, my kingdom's coming. I'm the long-awaited Messiah. It's here. Get excited. But by the way, you're going to have to be more righteous than the Pharisees. I'd be like, well, I'm out, right? You know, I'd be like, oh, great. Um, if the Pharisees weren't righteous enough, what hope do we have as ordinary, fallen, broken, <laughs> faulty people? Now, when I usually hear people talk about this passage, um, they say something about Jesus was trying to get people. Himself says plainly in Romans enough to earn a right relationship with God. And Paul, a former Pharisee himself, says plainly in Romans 3.10. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is really looking for God. And the New Testament authors over and over again make it really clear that we cannot earn God's love. God didn't say, you know, earn my love, and then you can have some of Jesus' sacrifice. No, God sent his son to die in our place because he loves us, not so that he might love us. He died while we were yet sinners. He shows us mercy and grace. And yet, I think Jesus is getting to something else here in this passage. And we'll see this throughout his teaching in the book of Matthew. I think a better English translation might, be, uh, might say, you're going to need a different kind of righteousness than the Pharisees to enter my kingdom, or a truer kind of righteousness than the Pharisees to enter my kingdom, or of a better kind of righteousness than the Pharisees to enter my kingdom. Now, part of the reason that I think this is a better way to look at this is because of what comes next. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at Jesus say um, over and over again, he's going to say this. You've heard it said, and guess who was saying the things he's going to say? The Pharisees. And then he's going to say, but here's what you should actually be doing. And then he's going to say, they say, and he's going to say something, and then he's going to say, but here's what you actually should be doing. And so he's going to critique what the Pharisees are teaching, and he's going to get to the heart of what God actually wants. He's going to point out how the Pharisees only care about what people see. They don't care about what is in people's hearts. And Jesus is as much more interested in changing people's hearts than simply forcing a change in their behaviors. Now, for instance, in the next few weeks, we're going to get to Jesus saying, you've been told by the Pharisees, don't commit murder. But I say, don't hate people. If you don't hate people, you won't murder them. He's going to say, you've been told, don't commit adultery. But he's going to say, no, my kingdom people won't even lust after people. If you don't lust after people, you won't commit adultery. The Pharisees kept the law to impress people and earn positions. Jesus says students of his way of life, his kingdom people will do the right thing, not to impress people, not to earn positions, but because they love God. They love him and they love others. This is the greater righteousness, love instead of law. And this is what Jesus is saying. And if you think that somehow Jesus is asking you to do more righteous acts and somehow earn your way into the kingdom, I would say go back to how the whole Sermon on the Mount starts, where he says, blessed are the 
poor in spirit. Another way of saying that in Eugene Peterson's translation is the spiritual zeros and the spiritually bankrupt. So Jesus is inviting into his kingdom not the people who have it all together, but the people who are recognized that they're spiritually bankrupt, but are willing to make an internal change. It is human nature to do things that make us look moral instead of doing things that actually make us moral. And Jesus is much while well, we retain our best like himself than merely making us look like himself while we retain our bad inward traits. Here's Jesus's rebuke of the Pharisees a few chapters later. Now this tirade here that I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 23 comes immediately before the Pharisees decide they need to kill this guy. Okay, this is what Jesus stands up and says about the Pharisees in Matthew 23 verses 27 through 28. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees. It might be like this uh, in modern. Woe to you pastors and preachers and teachers and speakers and the most religious looking people you know. You are hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. That's why Jesus was telling people, if you want to be in my kingdom, you've got to be more righteous than the Pharisees because they look really righteous, but they're not righteous at all. And that's the end of Jesus' introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. So in the next few weeks, we'll start diving into his teachings. Next week, we'll get into his first teachings and throughout the summer. But before we do that, as we come to the end of our message today, we need to stop and consider some things about ourselves. Okay? Ready for some uh, reflection, introspection? What kind of righteousness do you have? The kind that impresses people or the kind that impresses God? Do you only do the right thing when people are watching or do you do the right thing when no one's around? Um, a mentor of mine used to tell me, you're never more spiritually mature than the worst thing you do when no one's watching. That's incredibly convicting. Do we love Jesus, or is it something we say and never show? Do we both practice and teach the commands of Jesus? Sometimes we practice it, but we're like, oh, I don't want to influence anyone else. Would Jesus consider us great in his kingdom because we practice what he teaches here in the Sermon on the Mount? Or do we make excuses not to practice it? And by making excuses, convince others to do the same. Or, maybe, you've been trying so hard to get God to love you. And you need to realize, he already does. He already sent his son. You can stop and acknowledge that he loves you despite your best efforts. Not because of them. Right now, you can say, Jesus, I can't earn your love. I know you love, uh, you love me. I want to be your student. I want to learn to live and love like you. I don't have to earn your love, it's freely given, and I want to freely give it to others. Wherever we're at, though, after something like this, I always feel a little bit like, oh man, I have so far to go. The gap between where I am and where Jesus is is so wide. Wherever we're at, though, we can have a fresh start when we repent. And repenting just means being honest about where we are. And when we're honest with God about where we are, he can take us where we need to go next. And that's one of the things I love about Jesus. Let's pray. Could not be righteous. Thank you for your Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for being righteous when we could not be righteous so that you could bridge the gap between us and God. Because God, even when I try really hard to be good, I realize 
the, the depth of my depravity goes deeper than I'd ever imagined. Every time I start cleaning up the outside of my life where people start thinking, he's a pretty good moral person, I realize that there's layers of arrogance, layers of anger and hatred and bitterness and selfishness that go way down deep, the roots of which are deep into my heart and soul. And so God, once again, I just want to repent. So often I try to make things about myself instead of about you. Even when I do the right things, many times I'm doing them for the wrong reasons. And so God, I just want to join others here. things right and God we want to work 